business deals, all sorts of treasures, opportunities galore. But one day, a different new sort of ad appeared in the newspapers. It was an appeal from a certain Prince, Bill Morrison. The Prince was of noble birth and hailed from the far reaches of Nigeria. All he wanted was some American pen pals. And so moving was the wording of his ad that papers published his mailing address for free. After all, shouldn't this poor prince in Nigeria have some good old American correspondence? And he found them, lots of them. After a few letters were sent back and forth to his new friends, Prince Morrison made a simple request. Would his American acquaintances send him a mere $4 and a pair of old trousers they no longer needed? In exchange for such a small thing, he would send them diamonds and emeralds. To him, they were worthless baubles. Friendship, however, was priceless. So the money and the trousers poured in. But where were the jewels? Soon complaints began to flood the postal service. Where was the wealth that this Prince Morrison had promised to send? Suspecting fraud, the authorities ferreted out this wealthy Nigerian. They soon discovered his wealth had been a creation of his fertile mind, as was his nobility. He was an American. He was anything but wealthy, and he was 14 years old. Though Bill Morrison's age stopped any litigation or court cases, his letters showed a great success in that people were willing to accept and believe in such promises. Americans over a century ago had just been taken in with the first Nigerian mail order con, the old-fashioned predecessor to the email phishing scam that we're so familiar with today. Now, this is a story, a version of the story that's recounted by Maria Kodakova in her book, The Confidence Game. By now, we are aware of such scams. You receive an amazing promise, and all you need to do is send your credit card number, or some money, or your banking information, or something else. We all know the drill. It's a scam designed to take advantage of your trust, because it will only work if you believe the one who makes the promise. You see, a promise is only as good as the one who makes it. If you don't trust the person, then you will not believe their promises, because a promise depends on the trustworthiness of the promiser. If you can trust the person, then you can trust their promises. Now ask yourself, who do you trust? We trust people whom we know. We accept promises from people because we know them to be honest and faithful. When God created everything, the universe, the earth, people, and all living beings, the seen and the unseen, he made a promise. God promised that his creation would bring him glory and honor, as he says in Numbers 14, 21. God said, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. However, when people fail God by rejecting and rebelling against him, which God calls sin, 
we fell away from knowing him, and one consequence was physical and spiritual death. However, God made this great promise that he would bring us back to know him, and in fulfilling that promise, he would receive glory and honor. Yes, God is not only real, he loves so deeply that he promised one day to rescue us so that we could know and worship him and he would be glorified. It's an amazing promise, an unbelievably wonderful promise that God cares so much. But how can someone trust that promise without knowing the one who made the promise? Sadly, many people in our day don't trust God because they do not believe that he exists or that he cares or that because they know things that are wrong about him. Well, God knows people so well that after making his promise, he has spent many centuries making himself known to people, in particular to the people of Israel. Now, as people began to know the character of God through his words and his actions, they also began to trust God's promises. So he sent prophets who told us about God, what he is like, who he is, what he expects from us all, so that we would know about God. And this is all recorded in God's holy scriptures for anyone to read in many languages in the world. However, God went even further than just telling us about himself. Within human history, God has shown his character and his promise by repeatedly saving his people. We know God by his saving acts. On one level, when you look at the entire Bible, you can see that God makes his promise to redeem humanity, and then over many centuries, demonstrates his promise through his mercy. Well, God's people waited with longing and anticipation for the day that God would finally complete this promise, all for his honor and for his glory. Now, this Sunday, as we've seen so far in the service, is known as the first of four Advent Sundays leading to Christmas. On the first Advent Sunday, we remember and celebrate the hope that God fulfilled his promise to completely and eternally save people from their sin, brokenness, and rebellious disobedience against God. As we will see, the fulfillment of God's promise, his saving work for Israel, and by extension to all humanity, rests upon one person, the Messiah, Jesus. God chose to become human being so that we could know him, and through his Messiah, that we could trust and receive God's promise to be saved forever. We can trust God's promises because God has made himself known to us through his words, through his saving acts, and finally, through his son. In Romans chapter one, verses one to four, Paul begins his letter to the church at Rome by introducing himself as one sent to proclaim this promise in Christ and by reminding his readers that God has now fulfilled his promise in and through Christ Jesus. So in these verses, we're going to look at four different aspects of God's promise. The promise is proclaimed. The promise is given. 
promise is fulfilled, and the promise is received. Let's first begin by reading the text itself. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now in verse one, Paul proclaims a promise. He describes himself in three different ways. He says he is a servant of Christ Jesus, he is called to be an apostle, and he's set apart for the gospel of God. Paul's purpose in life was to serve Christ by proclaiming that the promised good news or gospel was at last fulfilled. After centuries of waiting, longing, and eager anticipation, God's promise is now finally here. God is now spreading this news to everyone, everywhere, both to Jews and to Gentiles. When Paul says that he is a servant or a slave of Christ, he is not referring to forced servitude, but to a willing and thankful submission and surrender to Christ. To be a servant is a title of humility. It demonstrates honor and privilege that God would accept someone into his service. And in a broader sense, all disciples of Jesus are his servants. Now, while all of us are followers of Christ and his servants, only a few were called to be apostles. The word apostle means one sent for a specific purpose. Not just anyone could be an apostle. As John Stott notes, you needed to be directly and personally called and commissioned by Jesus. You needed to be an eyewitness of the historical Jesus, and in particular, of his resurrection. Apostles were sent out with the authority to serve the one who sent them. So Paul did not choose to be called an apostle. That was Christ's decision. And what was Paul's duty as an apostle? What did he do? Well, he says that he was set apart for the gospel, set apart to proclaim the message of Christ. You see, Paul didn't always know God. He knew about the promises of God, but he didn't always know about God. In fact, the highly religious Paul, who was then known as Saul, sought to fight against those who followed Christ. He persecuted those who were disciples of Jesus. And it took a unique and life-transforming experience to arrest Paul and to set him apart from Christ. Now, Paul describes his experience in the book of Acts. And this is known as the road to Damascus experience, where the resurrected Christ met Paul, and in Acts 9.15, Paul learned that he was to be a chosen instrument to carry Christ's name before the Gentiles, the kings and children of Israel. So Paul was set apart as a servant for a specific task to proclaim the gospel to Jews and Gentiles. Now the promise itself, what is he sent to, to proclaim the promise? Well, the promise is given. Paul set apart for the gospel of God, which he, that is God, promised beforehand 
through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And we learn that the promise is called the gospel of God. And it was a promise given and announced by God beforehand, that is, before it was fulfilled. God chose to make his good news known through and by means of prophets. Prophets are people that God selected to deliver his words and record and tell of his deeds and works. And these accounts of God's words and deeds are collected for us in the Holy Scriptures so that we can know about God and be ready to receive his promise. Because when Paul writes, he's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. And as Tom Holland notes in his commentary, Paul's concern is not necessarily to bring to mind specific prophecies. His desire is to emphasize that the promised good news of God was about the ending of Israel's exile and her deliverance through the coming of the son of David to be fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus. So what is the gospel? What is Paul sent to proclaim? What is promised? Well, the gospel of good news is that God acted through Jesus to fulfill the promises he made to redeem and save humanity, all for his glory and honor. This flows from God's love, his grace, his mercy, and his plan was to recreate a people for himself. Now, before we go on to complete uh, the promise in verses three and four, it's important for us to pause right now and to remember what, what was life like before the first Christmas? We're so familiar with Christmas for 2,000 years. What was life like before that Christmas time, spiritually? How did God deliver his promise in history, in the history of Israel, before the final fulfillment, before the very first Christmas? Well, in what follows, I'm relying in part on Tom Holland's commentary on Romans 1, because I want to offer you a short summary of how God unveiled his wondrous promise of restoration within the history of the Old Testament. And it revolves around three people. It revolves around Abraham, Moses, and David. Now in Acts 7, if you turn to Acts 7, you can also read how Stephen has done exactly the same thing when he defended himself before the authorities by summarizing how God saved Israel. Because there he focuses on Abraham, Moses, and David. And this should be familiar to most of you. God called Abraham to leave the security of his home, enter into a land that he was promised that he'd be given by God. God made a promise to Abraham regarding his descendants. This promise or covenant is the basis of all that happened to Abraham and his descendants. Now, after many trials and setbacks, Abraham and his household finally settled in the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, and his descendants prospered. And as with most families, there were difficult times. About 200 years later, after Abraham, the whole family moved down to Egypt to escape a famine. So they settled in a place called Goshan and enjoyed a time of plenty. However, as time went by, the government of the land changed and took a hard line against the people of Abraham. And the Hebrews became the object of persecution and were forced into slavery. The situation worsened, and a pharaoh commanded that their male babies 
be put to the death at birth. At this point, another great Hebrew figure came to the scene of Jewish history. As a baby, Moses was spared when an Egyptian princess found him among the reeds in the riverbank and adopted him into the royal family. Eventually, as an adult, Moses transferred his allegiance to his own people. And under God's authority, Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness to begin a journey back to their promised land. So going back to the promised land, Abraham was led there, Moses took them back to the promised land. Now the events of this exodus tell of how God protected his people. Again, God is fulfilling his promise in part. When Pharaoh, the Egyptian ruler, did everything possible to stop them from leaving. Now Moses warned the king and said, if he did not let the Hebrews go, his firstborn, bond, his firstborn son, that is the Pharaoh's firstborn son, would be stricken dead, as would all those of all other Egyptian families. And of course, as we know, the warning was ignored. The Jews, however, obeyed what they were told to do. They took the blood of ten lambs and smeared it on the doorposts of their homes. Then that fateful night came and the Lord passed through the city. And wherever he saw blood, he spared the family, the firstborn. When there was no blood, the firstborn was taken. This is called the Passover. And it's still celebrated today every year as Jews look back to the great time that God liberated them from Egypt. So the Jews eventually went back to the promised land. And in the subsequent history, had its highs and lows. The nation became a monarchy, believing this would change its fortunes. In fact, the nation already had a king. His name was God, but they wanted something else. Their first anointed king was Saul, and he was succeeded by another important figure in Jewish history, King David. David was somebody, the Bible tells us, was a man who mostly strove to do what God wanted him to do. Under his leadership, the nation was made prosperous and secure, and he was denied, however, one thing that he wanted to do. There's one thing Daniel longed to do, or David longed to do, that he was prevented from doing. He wanted to build a temple for God to dwell in. But God would not permit him because he was a man of bloodshed. He'd fought many wars. But he was so pleased with David's desire that he pledged to give David descendants and an everlasting household. So the family of David would become the Jewish royal dynasty. And David was promised that one of his descendants would always rule over his chosen people, God's chosen people. And this promise was made by the Lord to David and is known as the Davidic covenant. The people of Israel never thought that this would change. Now, tragically, David's son Solomon was not the king the nation needed. He was not the promised one. Over the course of time, Israel disobeyed God so much that they were sent into exile again, this time to Babylon. The people were devastated. They saw the exile as punishment for their sins, and they found great difficulty in thinking that there could be any way back to the promised land. But this is the very thing that the prophets had promised them. So in spite of the collapse of the royal family, they predicted that a descendant of David would be raised up, who would lead the people 
from their captivity back to the promised land. He'd be anointed with the spirit of the Lord and he would lead the people through the wilderness. It'd be like when the Hebrews left Egypt. It would be a second exodus. And there's much more that can be said about this. But after the Jews returned to the exile in Babylon, they spent the next 400 years constantly looking for the coming descendant of David. But he didn't appear. 400 years is a long time to wait. So you can imagine the utter joy and excitement when angels announced to lowly shepherds that the Messiah was now here. It must have been incredible excitement. What, it's, it's happening now? I've been waiting for so long, and today's the day. In God's perfect timing, the promise arrived in an unexpected way. The Messiah arrived as a human baby. Welcome to the first Christmas. Now, Paul proclaims this first Christmas and beyond in the life of Christ and his death and resurrection. And he says his promise is now fulfilled in verses 3 and 4, Romans chapter 1. The gospel of God concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Paul explains to us that the gospel of God concerns his son. Nothing else concerns his son. It is a Messiah who was promised beforehand by the prophets, who would finally complete God's promise to redeem people for his glory. Now, in these two verses, Paul describes Jesus in two complementary ways. In the first way, in verse 3, he tells us that Jesus, the Messiah, is a descendant of David. God promised that a son of David would rule as king forever and would bring the new covenant. And so it was, the Messiah needed to be a descendant of King David. Anyone else is ruled out. He had to be a descendant of David. And he was descendant of David according to the flesh, which means human nature. Human nature, or the human condition, is weak and vulnerable, as we all know too well in our day. Now Holland writes, the verse is saying that according to natural descent, Jesus was of the line of King David. He was truly man and shared all the weaknesses of the human condition. Because he shared in the whole range of human experience and entered into our weakness, apart from our sinful status, he can now be our faithful high priest, understanding our needs and sympathizing with us in our frailty. So God knows us and he comes so that we would know him. The second way that Paul describes the Messiah is as the Son of God. This phrase is a little more difficult to understand because it depends on the meaning of the Son of God, the word translated as declared, and the meaning of the phrase spirit of holiness. Concerning his Son, who was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Now, there are two layers of meaning when it comes to the term or phrase, Son of God. In the Old Testament, the usage in no way implies deity. Leaders, judges, kings, even the whole nation of Israel were called Son of God. 
As it says, for example, in Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In the New Testament, Christians are also called sons of God in a sense of being heirs of God. Paul later writes this, the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. The term son of God is also used of Jesus in the Gospels where Peter says of Christ, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And it carries the Old Testament meaning that Jesus is the promised king, the descendant of David. It was only after the resurrection that it became crystal clear to people that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, capital S, because of the resurrection. In Paul's use of the term Son of God, I do agree with Stott and Holland and Schreiner, these are men who are commentators, that this refers to the title Messianic King which parallels Son of David as a title for Messianic King. This idea will become a little clearer as we move along to the word declared. Now this word declared, when Paul says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God, the word declared actually means appointed. Jesus was appointed to be the Son of God. Well, translators desiring to avoid any sense that Jesus somehow became the Son of God, because of his resurrection, opted for the word declare. Now, as we know, Jesus was not appointed as the Son of God at the resurrection because Jesus was already eternally the Son of God. And as the eternal Son, he became the Son of David through the incarnation. And so translators favor the word declare. So borrowing from Schreiner, we can interpret the phrase in this way. Through the resurrection, the Messiah, Jesus, was exalted to a level of power and authority not previously possessed. That is, now he ruled as the Messianic king. This is important. Because of the resurrection, the Messiah's status and role is exalted beyond that of just a human being. This is why Paul writes, declared to be the Son of God in power. It's in power. Peter in Acts 2, 36 said, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, thereby now resurrected, both Lord and Messiah. The resurrection is the evidence that the work of redemption was completed, and Jesus is the Lord and now the Messiah. Again, Schreiner tells us, while Jesus was on the earth, he was the Messiah and Son of God. As a human being, he was both the Son of God and Messiah. But his death and resurrection inaugurated a stage in his messianic existence that was not formerly his. Now he reigns as Lord in Christ. And Paul further explains this. This was all done according to the spirit of holiness. This declaration of Jesus as both Lord and Messiah, which means Christ, was manifested according to the spirit of holiness. Now, there's a lot of discussion about what this term means, and for the sake of time, I'll simply say that I tend to favor Schreiner's view that the term spirit of holiness does not refer to the deity of Christ, but that it is likely reference to the Holy Spirit. Because you may have noticed that Paul uses the phrase according to two times. He writes that the son of David, 
that the son became the son of David according to the flesh, and that he was declared to be the son of God according to the spirit of holiness. These two statements reflect two stages in the ministry of Jesus. So the contrast that Paul is making is not necessarily between the natures of Christ, human and divine, but between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. And the contrast can be stated in this way. The son of David, according to the flesh, points to the incarnation, where the eternal son of God becomes human as a descendant of David in order to live in the age dominated by the weakness of the flesh. He enters human existence in creation, a sinful world. Son of God, according to the Holy Spirit, points to the resurrection where the eternal Son of God in power is declared, announced, and recognized as the eternal Son of God. And he takes the mantle of messianic king in order to start the new age, which is characterized not by the flesh, but by the Holy Spirit. According to John Stott, this becomes a bound statement of both the humiliation and weakness of Jesus, humanity, and the exaltation and power of the resurrected Son. So the resurrection is the turning point in the existence of the Son of God. In his humanity, he shared human weakness and vulnerability, but through the resurrection, he is displayed and takes on the power of the Messianic King. His status as Son of David allowed Jesus to gather together all the promises that God had made throughout all the scriptures and then fulfill them as we will celebrate shortly in communion through the resurrection. The promise of the gospel of God that Paul proclaims is that the Messiah has come as son of David who fulfilled the promise through resurrection and is now exalted to the right hand of the Father where he rules as king. And this all began to be fulfilled on that first Christmas day. Now there is only one conclusion that Paul could possibly present. And that conclusion is found in our last part of the text. Paul concludes in verse 4b, Jesus Christ our Lord. The promise is given by God to bring glory and honor through his saving of a people for himself. Over many centuries, God has unfolded this promise, making us know him and other promises being fulfilled and completed by the Messiah Jesus, who fulfilled the prophecies and became the son of God, the son of David, and to the resurrection, is now exalted as Messiah King. Now that we know the promise, now that we know the one who made the promise, we're ready to do what? We're ready to receive the promise. Jesus Messiah is not just the Lord. Yes, he's the Lord but he's not just the Lord. Paul says what? He says Jesus is our Lord because in response to God's fulfilled promise, we receive and entrust ourselves to Jesus as Savior so that Jesus Christ becomes our Lord. At the outset of this message, I mentioned God promised to bring honor and glory to his name. Now as people, even today, throughout the world, as people believe and embrace God's promised one and accept the plan of redemption fulfilled in Christ, God is glorified. He fulfills his promise. John Piper says it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. 
because God intends to be known. And his name will receive glory, the glory, the honor, and the worship that he alone deserves. And as we know and learn about him, we find we can trust his promises because he is trustworthy and faithful. Look at the history of what he's done in saving Israel many times. This is what Christmas is about, the arrival of the only one who can complete the promised gospel of God. God himself becoming clothed in humanity so that we can not only know him, but also receive his promise by faith in surrendering ourselves to God's Messiah. Because Christ Jesus is the gospel. He is Christmas. He is the one who fulfills the promise of God, and he's the only one who can save people from eternal separation from God. No wonder that we Christians celebrate Christmas, Christmas with such joy, with such longing and remembrance of this is the time that God fulfills his promise. This is the time that he actually began to complete centuries of his work in redeeming humanity. So Christmas is a time to reflect on God's promise to save us. Now, if you've been watching this and find that uh, you've never really trusted or received God's promise of forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Christ Jesus, then let today be your first day of new life. Paul later in this letter to the Romans tells you how to make this possible, how to receive God's promise. Paul says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it's with the heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise that God keeps. Once you have been saved, rejoice. Because this Christmas will be like, unlike any other, for the Messiah will have arrived in your life, not just in the world. If you have already received God's promise, as Christ is your Savior and Master, the one who sacrificed himself in order to redeem you and, fu and fulfill God's promise, then today, begin this Advent season of these next weeks by taking some time alone with the Lord to rededicate yourself to him, to remember, to reflect all that has happened before that first Christmas so that we can be saved. Let us thank the Father and worship for the hope of his promise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great promise that you determined to be glorified and you've done it, you've accomplished it. It is there. At last, Lord, we praise and worship you and thank you for the salvation that you've brought in the Messiah that all might know you and worship you and receive your promise. Lord, thank you for, for just what you're doing and for allowing us to come and to worship you and exalt your name. Amen.